Welcome to this Brigham and Women's Hospital podcast, dedicated to providing the latest information about today's health topics directly from our experts. We want to remind you that this information should not take the place of advice or recommendations you receive from your healthcare providers. According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 28,000 people died from opioid-related overdoses in this country in 2014, quadruple the rate in 2000. Massachusetts has one of the fastest growing overdose death rates, increasing almost 20% from 2013 to 2014. What is the medical community doing to address this crisis? In this podcast, recorded at a President's Advisory Council meeting, Chief Communication Officer Aaron McDonough interviews three Brigham experts. Dr. Luis Laban, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital. Dr. Joji Suzuki, Director of the Division of Addiction Psychiatry. And Dr. Leanne Woodward, Director of Research in the Department of Pediatric Newborn Medicine. To our panelists, we heard Betsy mention, and it's true, that every single day there are multiple news stories about this, as Deborah said, opioid crisis, for lack of better term right now. The CDC reports that in 2014, 47,000 opioid-related deaths were recorded, and those numbers are rising, which is really stunning. Can you tell me why the rise? Can we begin with you, Dr. Suzuki? Sure. Um, I, I think the current crisis can really uh, trace back uh, about 20 years ago when uh, physicians were aggressively being recommended to treat pain and identify pain. Uh, American Pain Society announced that pain, now, pain is now the fifth vital sign. Um, so in addition to measuring heart rate and blood pressure, now you're supposed to ask about pain. Um, so uh, even though we weren't necessarily training our physicians in, in appropriate pain management, the, the number of opioids being prescribed started to increase dramatically. And for the last 20 years, it's been a straight line uh, increasing of, of opioids being prescribed. So that's number one. Number two is um, at the same time that this was happening, uh, powerful new opioid medications are being introduced. Uh, the, probably the most famous is OxyContin, which became available in the mid-1990s. And looking back, it's sort of shocking, but at the time, it was marketed as a non-addictive version. And so physicians remember clearly hearing from um, sort of drug reps that this is a safer version, so feel free to prescribe this, and became the, one of the uh, top sellers uh, uh, in terms of pay, pay medications. So that was number two. And number three, as Dr. Nabel already mentioned, because so much of these prescriptions were being prescribed, um, now there was an overabundance of these medications flooding the communities. So when you ask, when you look at surveys of general population of people who are uh, misusing these medications in the community, and you ask them where you're getting it from, the vast majority are not getting it from uh, dealers or anything like that. They're actually getting it free or bought or stolen from families or friends. Um, so, uh, so large amount of opioids are being prescribed, uh, and powerful opioids are, are being prescribed, and then these medications are being diverted to people who should not be taking them. And so uh, the governor also mentioned this all the time, but at this point in the United States, even though we represent only 5% of the world's population, we account for 80% of all the opioids being prescribed. And if you look at hydrocodone, it's actually 99% of the entire global supply for our citizens. That's an incredible statistic. I know that the rise um, of the number of patients impacted by this is directly correlating to the rise in ED visits. What are we seeing in our emergency departments, and how are you responding, Dr. Lebon? 
So um, the most recent data that we have from the Centers for Disease Control um, uh, tells us that all, for every single opiate overdose death, there are at about 46 emergency department visits associated to this particular problem and about 24 hospitalizations. So you can imagine the costs associated with one single death, again, 46 emergency department visits and 26 hospitalizations. Um, when this became a crisis and Dr. Suzuki related to, you know, the 20 years ago and most recently to the fifth sign as pain being identified. We also have to uh, look at the, uh, the, the element that is key and behind, key behind you know, this uh, transformation from a war on drugs to a uh, public epidemic. So if we do a cross-section of the population affected, all age groups are affected. I think my most not noticeable um, eye-opening experience related to a potential opiate overdose uh, was an 86-year-old patient that I saw in the emergency department that had been prescribed opiates for 30 years. And I saw on, a, on an overnight shift because of intractable pain. And her claim to me was a very valid one. But doctor, if you don't prescribe these medications to me today, what, I am, what am I going to do? Who am I going to go for help? This is what has transformed a drug on drugs to a public epidemic. It's incredible. So we know that the stigma around opioid addiction is immense. And we witnessed that even trying to find a patient and family member to come talk with us today. But the stigma seems to be particularly so with pregnant women. And I know, Dr. Woodward, in your work, you're at the Brigham, you're dealing with women who are coming to you who are pregnant and addicted. How is this crisis impacting your work at the Brigham? And what can be done for these women? Um, we've seen, uh, I pulled the information, the statistics on the number of babies that that have neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is a condition where you'll see the baby going through withdrawal with respiratory problems and other challenges, feeding difficulties and sometimes seizures. Um, so we've seen a, a doubling in numbers of babies, but those are really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, of, I mean, there'll be many babies that will have more subtle presentation that won't be meeting the full criteria, but certainly it's putting additional demands on, on the care because these are very complex women with complex family situations and dealing with addiction and making the transition to becoming a parent. And with mandatory reporting, there's a lot of um, paperwork that goes with that in terms of monitoring and testing for the mothers and the babies. I know that you are very focused um, in your work on the babies and that your OB colleagues are very focused on the moms. The sense that I get is when the moms leave the hospital, there's programming for them. Do we have similar programming for the babies? Is there support for them in the near term, having been born addicted and then ongoing? And how is your work and your research um, focused on that? 
About 10 years ago, we were doing some research in New Zealand, and this was a major area of concern because there are many population groups in New Zealand, just like the US, that do get quite good services. But children born to drug-dependent mothers are in a unique situation. There's a lot of attention around the mother, but once the baby leaves the hospital, there's not a lot in terms of follow-up for these children. And we initiated a study to study the longer-term developmental outcomes of these children. We did an MRI at term equivalent and showed that their brains were smaller. Uh, they, had, they, the, they were smaller babies. They had more respiratory problems. They were more likely to be re-hospitalized. Uh, and longer term, we've seen very similar, if not higher rates of developmental problems spanning health, cognition, language learning and vision problems um, are a particular area of um, health issue for these children that are similar if not higher than our preterm populations who do typically get services and meet criteria for help. You had mentioned in a conversation we had previously that the programs that you have in place for the premature babies are, are now services that you're looking to duplicate because of the rise. Is that something that's in the works? I th one of the things, one of the new initiatives that we have uh, happening, we, Betsy talked about the new NICU, um, that's a really important first stage, but another um, piece of the larger picture is to develop a follow-up program for graduates of our NICU, so that not, not only do we care for them in the hospital, but that at least for a number of years as they go out into the community, that we continue to monitor and support the families and the infants, um, and in particular make sure that they're linked in with services that can be helpful. And I see this population of mothers and infants as being a very important target group that we would not want to, in, to exclude. Excellent, thank you so much. So education, I think it's clear that raising awareness among patients um, is important and the public and patients' families who may be prescribed opioids. But education is such an important component of our mission. We're training the next generation of physicians and leaders. Uh, are we changing the way that we're training our current residents and fellows? And are we retraining physicians who have been thinking one way and now differently? Dr. Suzuki, can we start with you? Sure. Um, there are two aspects that, that we have to do a much better job. Number one is that we want all of our physicians to, to, to know how to prescribe uh, opioid medications, but manage pain more generally in a much more safe, safer way. So pain management and safe opioid prescribing training. And the other is if somebody does get addicted and actually manifest uh, behaviors that are concerning for addiction, what do we do about that? So both of these areas, we have to do a much better job. And the first place we really started was really medical school level. Uh, last year we uh, met with the governor uh, as part of their task force to actually come up with core competencies for all Massachusetts medical schools to implement so that all graduating medical students understand how to prescribe medications safely and how to treat addiction. Uh, so that's, 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 uh, that's, been, that's been ongoing. Second is we want to do a much better job training our residents. Because even if we train our medical students how to do this right, there's this thing called the hidden curriculum. Once they hit the wards, they learn how to practice medicine from their, from their residents. So we have to do a much better job training our residents primary care, uh, you know, medicine, surgery, OB, all of them to manage uh, pain better and to identify and treat addiction when it appears. And finally, for our practicing physicians, uh, we're actually currently creating a whole set of free CME courses uh, that physicians can take 
uh, to learn more about safe opioid prescribing, addiction treatment, pain management options, et cetera. So it's all hands on deck for all levels of uh, 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 clinicians so that we can, we can be better prepared. We said that the emergency medicine physicians are really on the front lines of this, and you mentioned the statistics about how many ED visits. Are you training your emergency medicine folks differently, the residents and fellows, and is there retraining going on there as well? Absolutely. Um, so I'll go a little bit uh, more in detail also about how we're training our residents and fellows uh, to deal with the crisis that we're living in right now. Many of the, of the aspects uh, we share with the points that Dr. Suzuki described to you, but it's basically a four-phase uh, four uh, uh, process. We're teaching and we're learning at the same time as we're teaching. We are um, doing a screening on our patients. What is so difficult about talking to a patient about a potential habit? Why do we not ask the questions? Well, the data out there shows that Massachusetts physicians ask much less than any other physicians in the country about potential opiate or uh, uh, either a consumption or prescription to patients than any others in the nation. So that screening process, the first phase is talking to our patients. Have you ever been prescribed a narcotic before? What were the effects? Was it useful or not? That takes time, and in a busy emergency department, that can be very taxing. The screening process also includes some of the tools that our state and other states have developed to help us determine if patients have a history of narcotic prescription um, and compare you know, to other states. And now there are some, some software out there that will enable us to interface through our EPIC system, our new electronic medical record, with that software and share um, in, uh, patient care plans in regards not only to uh, potential behavioral health history, but also an opioid dependency. Uh, so the first phase is that screening. The second phase is to use some guidelines on prescriptions. So in emergency medicine, we don't tend to prescribe long-term opioids, but we do prescribe short-term uh, and also um, immediate release. Immediate release meaning medications that act immediately almost after you, know, you have taken them. It doesn't take a prolonged time. So we are teaching our residents and our fellows how to adhere to those guidelines. Um, and we are also doing a lot of training across the entire department, not only with um, how to prescribe, how to screen our patients, but how do we deal with the crisis today? So emergency departments tend to be the safety net of our healthcare system, and we need a crisis intervention. Our crisis intervention could save lives. So for those patients that we know have a history of an opioid dependency with a history of an overdose, we can administer medications ahead of time, so the next time they may suffer an overdose, they have a second chance. Excellent. And what about in the NICU and the NOB? Are you looking at the problem differently and training the residents and fellows differently? Are you coming together with your OB colleagues differently than you have in the past? 
most of our efforts have been focused on the neonatal unit and actually managing the babies better and trying. Um, we in the last year we had a we have a clinical practice council now that uh, that consists of multidisciplinary groups within the NICU who are developing new policies and practices around care for different conditions and this has been a target area and a lot of it's around staff education um, um, making sure that we're not stigmatizing uh, families and, and parents so that they feel that they can come in and be with their baby uh, initiating more non-pharmacological approaches to managing withdrawal in the baby through cuddling and swaddling and uh, using sucrose rather than actually prescribing more opioids for the baby. Uh, so yes, we are, we are doing things, but I think we're still, it's still a work in progress. Excellent. Dr. Lavon, you mentioned the implementation of EPIC, and Betsy mentioned that we've finally gotten to a, a stabilization in place. Is our electronic medical records, will technology help mitigate this crisis at some point, not only for our own patients within the Brigham, but across partners across the Commonwealth? Do, do we see a future um, where technology will play a role in mitigating this crisis, Dr. Suzuki? Absolutely. <clears throat> One way it's already helping is that the EPIC is already designed to uh, bring up what's called a pres prescription monitoring program, um, which is a system uh, that's already been implemented across the entire country where we can look up a particular patient and identify which pa pain medication they've been receiving, from whom, which pharmacy, you know, how, how many pills, um, so we can identify patients who are, for example, doctor shopping. Um, so this uh, EPIC system is designed to actually bring this up automatically uh, to help clinicians make decisions better. So it's already is being that used. Is making a, a difference in the ED? It's, it's making a, a tremendous difference. Um, I used it this morning, seeing one of my patients. You know, the story did not sound too clear. So I activated my prescription monitoring program, and there I found uh, a significant amount of information about the, the different hospitals that the patient had visited and the amounts of medications prescribed, op opioids prescribed by different providers. Uh, but the, the prescription monitoring program is something, is a database that in, in many ways, and we were talking about this before um, coming uh, in front of you, is, is somewhat a passive database. So we can go into that database and look at some records about individual patients. But we don't know if that translates into uh, a dependency, it, it translates into the patient having uh, a crisis at the moment that we're evaluating them. So we are going even farther than that and looking at other, at other systems and other software that in a seamless way will interface with our EPIC systems and will be able to tell us about patients' care plans. So this is not just a record about how many prescriptions were provided to a patient, but this is a care plan that was put together by a multidisciplinary team of providers that assess the patient's needs for, uh, chronic needs for pain medication. And would look also at very important factors like Dr. Samuels mentioned, you know, the suffering versus the pain control. Excellent. Um, so my final question, we know that there are no easy answers to solving this crisis. Um, in addition to the work that you're doing clinically with your patients and the research that you're doing, what do you see on the horizon? What do you expect will be next in each of your fields? If we could start maybe, Dr. Woodward, with you. 
what would be next in terms of the research? Um, I think we really need to understand, I mean, I think there needs to be more effort to support the families when they leave home, when they leave the hospital rather, and thinking about what the parenting needs and the mental health needs of these women. Because these, I think we're talking about opioids, but they, it comes with other things like poverty and sometimes family violence, but also mental health problems. I mean, I think we had nearly half of the women met criteria for depression. And these are all, it's how these multiple factors work together to impact the child's development. Well, I think an important step is to acknowledge that we own this problem. This, in a way, is something that we created. We're not talking about drugs that are being sold out in the street. We've been talking about prescriptions that patients are getting for us, their physicians, that they trust and have cared for them for uh, a number of years. So our ownership, I think, is key. Um, but I also think that our um, healthcare system needs to stop stigmatizing you know, addictions. For any of you that have gone through a selection of a healthcare plan in the past, let's say, year, you would have probably identified that you don't have to choose a care plan for cardiology or gynecology or obstetrics. But there is an, a separate option for behavioral health and also another one for addiction. Why are we classifying those type of problems differently than others. I think that's something that I would ask a little bit more atten attention paid to. That's excellent, and what I would have expected to hear from Dr. Suzuki, so <laughs> how would you respond? What's next, what do you see happening next? Unfortunately, there are no easy answers to this current solution, and Dr. Salmons mentioned there's no silver bullet. However, I think there are two main areas that, that we're focusing right now. Number one is, I already alluded to, we need to do a better job educating our, 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 our doctors and nurses. Um, and part of that is also providing support for them. Um, we really can't blame uh, you know, physicians who really have not had much training around this issue at all. Um, so we want to create a system in which we provide both real-time and virtual um, support to our clinicians in the front line so that if they have a patient sitting in front of them suffering from addiction, they have a central phone number to call and get guidance around uh, referral process or treatment options or um, you know, what to do in that moment. Uh, and also, they can send an email and get a response within a certain number of hours so that we're providing the support that they need. Because we can't just say, you know, treat addiction now or treat, you know, do pain management better. They need a lot of support from us. So that's number one. Number two is I think we need to do a much better job of um, uh, taking care of our patients. For example, if they come into the emergency room or into the hospital, that we're not just saying, okay, here's your problem, you're now discharged, goodbye. We have to do a much better job of linking patients to the services and, and, and treatments they need in the community so that we have to provide, create a much better uh, organized system so that patients are getting the treatment they need at the appropriate place uh, and these transitions are occurring very smoothly. Right now, our system is way too fragmented. I think we already know this. So we need a much better system that can uh, provide help for our patients. Our last minute, Dr. Suzuki, I know you're on the leadership team at the Brigham that is laser-focused on this crisis. Can you tell our PEC members who are very interested in what's going on in the Brigham in a minute or less, <laughs> if sure. you can, what that, what that group consists of and, and what you're focused on, what your charge is? Sure, absolutely. So we are currently organizing, and Scott Weiner, who's one of the emergency room doctors who couldn't be here, he's the chair for that, for that task group. 
but we're really bringing together all these stakeholders from the Brigham uh, affiliated um, uh, uh, departments to come together to design a coordinated systematic response to the current opioid crisis. So we have representations from emergency room, primary care, uh, psychiatry, addiction, OB, I mean everybody, all the community uh, sites for example. And to really think through some of the th things I've already mentioned, how do we ensure that pain management is done safely and responsibly and minimizing the amount of opioids that are prescribing. We really do have to reduce the total number of opioids we're, we're generating. We're just writing just too much. And how do we do that in safely? And, 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 and making sure that we're treating pain appropriately. Just as Dr. Samuel said, we still, patients are still suffering. We still have to find a way to treat that. It's not just about taking away the opioids. Um, the other is we have to do a much better job making sure that patients who are now addicted get the treatment they need. Because um, currently, uh, we have specialty clinics that deal with this, but we are absolutely overwhelmed with the demand. There are just too many patients that need treatment, and our specialty uh, uh, programs cannot handle it alone. We need our regular primary care doctors, uh, you know, uh, regular medical doctors to be able to handle this as, as well. But again, like before, they need a lot of support. So how do we think uh, as, as an entire healthcare organization to respond to this? And it's not just individual clinicians having to deal with this alone. Um, so we're, we're actually in the process now of, 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 of forming these work groups and we start the process of really thinking through what do we need to do. Thank you. We're so grateful for the work that you're doing on behalf of these patients and for taking time out of your very busy schedules to be here with us today. Can we have a round of applause for our experts? This concludes our podcast on Perspectives on the Opioid Crisis. Thank you for tuning in.